Father, we thank you that because of Christ, it can be well with our souls if we have done business with you through Jesus. We pray that we would believe in him, repent of our sin, turning always to Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray as we study your word today, you would make the truth alive in our hearts and make us obedient to what you've called us to be and do. We pray especially this would be true for those who don't know you. Call them to the truth of the gospel and to salvation. Convict them of sin. Call them to repentance and faith in Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. You can be seated. We are so blessed to study the word of God today through the centuries, 20 of them. The people of God have gathered in local churches sung the Word, read the Word, then opened the Word for study, and we join this long tradition joyfully, I hope, with eager expectation. You know, it was a very difficult week for us with the news of Pastor Jim losing our longtime friend and mentor. Many of you may not know this, but this church was quite a bit different a number of years ago. Jim and Liz back then were both Christian authors who visited the church on occasion when they were here uh, on vacation, and uh, they would come pretty much every time they would come to the island a couple times a year, and they would visit the church. And so when uh, it was time for this church, the last pastor was uh, retiring, the, uh, the pastor search team came to Jim and said, we know that you know some things about uh, churches and uh, doctrine, and what way would you encourage us? And of course, Jim... Uh, in his inimitable, humble way, would encourage them to look to someone who would make the Bible the center of the church. The vision of the church should have at its center the sufficiency of Scripture. God's Word would be the center of everything. Find an expositor, he told them. Find someone who, who would teach the Bible. Well, the church did that. They found a flawed young man all the way in Oklahoma. And uh, when I came to candidate, I preached a couple of weeks. Both sermons I preached, some of you remember this, both sermons I preached were almost an hour long. And both sermons were on expository preaching. I wanted to, everyone to know what they were getting themselves into if they were to hire me. And uh, after that second week, and I didn't know Jim and Liz, after that second week, uh, Jim came up to me with Liz, and he looked at me and he said, we're not members here from Washington, but we visit here all the time, and uh, we want you to know this church doesn't have a clue what you're talking about, but they're ready for it. And, uh, and I sort of thought, well, who are you, and do you have a clue? <laughs> and he said, I, I was a pastor on John MacArthur's staff for almost 30 years, and uh, I'm telling you, this church is ready. And uh, that tipped the scales for us. We went home pretty much knowing where God wanted us, it was here. A few years after that, Jim and Liz made Hawaii their permanent home and would live here most of the year. And so we voted our church and made him an elder, the other pastor with me and Jim and I. For those first, uh, pretty much the first half of my ministry here, we uh, tried to get things done. And he just helped me with strategy and organization and with patience and uh, just helped me think through practically how the Word of God would be central here at NBC. By 2016, we had a new statement of faith, 2017, a new constitution and bylaws, and 2018, we brought on some more elders. All that to say this, many of us in this room, if not most of us, 
whether you know it or not, know it or not, owe a debt of gratitude to Jim George. Uh, he really set this church on the course for it to be what it is today. Well, let's not squander our time. There's one thing I know Jim would want us to do, is that just, that is to, just to continue through the Word of God, and we've been looking at the book of Jonah. So open with me, if you will, to the book of Jonah, and we'll continue our study there in Jonah. As you remember, last week we left Jonah. He was suicidal. He was angry with God. He had been thrown into the ocean and swallowed by a giant fish. And that brings us to chapter 2, which is essentially the song that Jonah sang whilst in his anguish in the belly of the whale. Let me read chapter 2 for you, verses 1 to 10. Follow along as I read aloud. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and all your billows passed over me. And I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. All the roots of the mountains, at the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. And my life was fainting away. I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Next week, Lord willing... We're going to park here again in Jonah chapter 2. Jesus looked at this chapter, Jonah chapter 2, and compared himself to this prophet, this wayward prophet, Jonah. And so we're going to take some time to talk about Jesus and Jonah, which is to say, we're going to think about the bigger picture, the broad, historical, redemptive picture of this story, the book of Jonah and the biblical, the broad, large biblical narrative as a whole. It's interesting and probably, probably quite puzzling to some of us that Jesus would compare himself to the one prophet who distinguished himself with rebellion. Why in the world would Jesus do that? Well, next time, Lord willing, we will discover why. Today, though, we're going to look here in chapter 2 at the immediate context. Jonah is providing the people of God, as you can remember, a mirror in which to look. Now, watching and reading the story of Jonah, the people should see themselves. Their rebellion and concomitant racism were not only something that is inconsistent and in contradiction to God's calling on them, it is absolutely absurd to have this kind of attitude of rebellion. It's silly, in fact, like the story of Jonah. It's silly. It's self-destructive. And so God was going to bring about punishment upon the people of Israel just like He did with Jonah, exile, suffering, near extinction, but God had a purpose for it just like He did in Jonah's discipline. His anguish 
was marked upon his dial by the God of love. It would bring about repentance, and that's what chapter 2 is. It's a chapter of repentance. It's really a template of how we deal with discipline, how really we deal with hardship and anguish and adversity. Indeed, all hardship is part of God's discipline upon us. Part of His magnificent plan to save and to sanctify us is hardship, difficulty, discipline. Ironically, what we're going to discover, and some of you who've read the book of Jonah know that Jonah goes from this really wonderful attitude of repentance, an attitude we should emulate, to not persevering in that attitude and going right back to a life of really silly rebellion. But here we are, we're looking at Jonah in chapter 2, and here he models for us our own response to hardship and adversity. Really, if you think about it, as we live our lives, we face three different kinds of hardship. One kind of hardship is hardship that comes from natural causes. You think about Pastor Jim, you think about cancer, you think about all the things that happen in nature even, natural disasters. These are things that just happen naturally. No individual person is responsible for these things. It's just part of nature. We also suffer evil from other human beings. That's another kind of hardship we face. We are hurt. We are injured. People abuse us and treat us wrongly. We're passed over. We're looked at wrongly. We're accused. All these things happen from the hand of other people. Sometimes it's the hand of those closest to us. And then, of course, we face difficulty like Jonah did. Hardship we face because of our own misdeeds, our own sins that cause hardship. Now, because of this... In God's loving kindness, we find ourselves facing adversity, and it's a form of God's discipline upon us. It's a form of God asking us and calling us back to Himself. So today really is about how we deal with adversity, how we deal with hardship. My message today has two points. Perhaps you want to write this down. Number one, understand the Lord's discipline. Understand the Lord's discipline. One thing that's very obvious early on as Jonah sings this and prays this back to God, he understood that his affliction was planned by the sovereignty of God. I want to tear down a false image of God that many American Christians hold today. And I think it's prevalent in America and popular in America because, frankly, we have an easy life. If you look throughout history, most people, for most of history, all the way up to probably the last 100 years, most people in most of history barely could do enough just to survive. And we live really in a time of great ease. Our standard of living far exceeds what people could possibly even imagine 100 years ago. The ease of our life, the air-conditioned comfort, not just at, in our homes, but in our vehicles. Every moment of the way, we sort of live on a on a, a, a pillowy bed of sorts, our, our access to medical inventions, our access to all kinds of medicines. We live longer than any humans ever in the history of mankind. And because of that, I think a lot of people feel sort of entitled that God would bless them. They sort of feel entitled that, that God should make their lives easy, and, and if they do the right things, if they, you know, love God and 
attend church and do the right things, maybe God should give them an easy life. In fact, I heard a uh, preacher, there was a famous preacher when I was in seminary. He was a, a prosperity preacher there in the town in which I went to seminary, and he had a radio program, and every day that radio would, program would come on about the time that I was driving home, and he would start out that program by saying the same thing every single day. Everything good is from God, and everything bad is from the devil. Now, there's a sense in which this is true. I mean, the Bible says that every good and perfect gift comes from God, comes from the Father of lights. Moreover, there's passage in James that tells us that God cannot tempt. He's not of evil. He does not tempt anyone, and He cannot be tempted. And there's a sense in which even when you read books like Job and other books, you find out, well, yeah, Satan is directly involved in evil. Other people are involved in evil, certainly not God. What's wrong about that statement is that it doesn't tell the whole story, does it? It doesn't include any notion of the driving biblical truth that God is sovereign over even evil. He's sovereign even over the devil. Again, read Job 1. That's why I wanted to include that passage today. You have to come to a realization that God is sovereign, not just over the good things, but also the bad things. God is completely overall. And so simply to say everything good is from God and everything bad is from the devil is a half-truth, and a half-truth, as we all know, is a whole lie. We need to understand and recognize God is sovereign over all. You end up with a, a God that's powerless over Satan. It's just sort of two equal powers fighting it out all the time, and God constantly responding to whatever Satan decides he wants to do on earth. No. Again, read the first chapter of Job. Read some of the letters that Paul wrote to the people who suffered you find out very quickly that it's appointed to us to suffer, that God is in charge of even the devil. He's in charge of even what evil happens on earth. He's sovereign over it all. Even if He doesn't do it Himself, He's sovereign over what Satan does and what evil people do. Let me show you this and how Jonah realized this. Look back in chapter 1, verse 15. 1.15, it says, "...they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging." So who picked up Jonah? Now, it was these pagan sailors, right? They had some sort of cockamamie idea about how to appease some sort of God, and they, you know, it's all mixed in with these probably false and pagan beliefs, and they, they think, well, maybe sort of like throwing the virgin into the volcano. Maybe if we throw them into the sea, that the God will be appeased. Jonah goes along with it. They throw him into the sea. Of course, it happens according to what they desired. But it says very clearly, the sailors are the ones that threw him into the deep. Now look at chapter 2, verse 3. For you cast me into the deep. Who cast him in? God did. The point I'm making is Jonah sees this all as happening under God's sovereignty. Yes, those people may, in their wicked ideas about God and paganism, they may have thrown, me, thrown him in, but ultimately God was in charge of the entire situation. It was all part of God's plan. It was all part of God's sovereign rule. Clearly, God was sovereign in this, and it was you who cast me into the deep. I wonder if you've paused in your hardship and acknowledged this reality. It was you who cast me into the deep. 
You might look at someone who's offended you, who's hurt you, who's brought about hardship on your life, and, and you may just want to well up with blame and hatred towards that person, and you, you guard yourself from that, but you certainly don't want to say, well, God was in charge of that. God knew this. God planned all this. That's exactly what Jonah says, though. You cast me into the deep. This is all part of your plan. You purpose this evil to bring about something greater, to bring about your glory, to bring about my sanctification. And really, this is the, the template for all of evil in this era of eternity, right? There's this era of eternity, this from, from the creation, right after the creation, the fall of man until the redemption of creation when Jesus returns. There's this, there's this era. It seems like a long time for us, but it's a, it's a blip com compared to eternity. And in this era, God has appointed Satan for a very particular purpose. He's purposed that evil. He's purposed Satan's evil and Satan's freedom, so to speak, in such a way that he would be glorified. His ultimate evil, of course, being putting the Son of God and killing Him on the cross, and God, again, using that very evil to redeem humanity. You cast me into the deep. Can you find that attitude in your suffering? So Jonah's realizing this. He realizes that God purposed this in His sovereignty. He realized also that this affliction, this hardship was plotted. It was all really ultimately even from the love of God. It wasn't just a, a heartless mechanical sovereign who was up there carrying out some plan. It was an act of love of God towards Jonah. Jonah was literally dying in the belly of that fish. But something came alive in his heart. He saw this trouble he saw this adversity. He saw this painful reality. And he says in verse 4, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall look upon your holy temple. In other words, he started to hope. Maybe his hope was that he would die and he would look upon his eternal temple. Maybe that's what he was hoping. But nonetheless, he hoped for a relationship with God, he realized this was an act of God calling him back to himself. There's purpose in this. There's loving intent to this hardship. Each verse as you move through this is sort of the opposite of what we saw in the last chapter. From being wrapped up in his circumstances, from being selfish, from being self-centered, he suddenly is focused simply on God. Ultimately, we see this as an act of God's grace. You know, grace is not exactly the same as mercy. Mercy is God not giving to us what we deserve. Grace is God giving to us something we don't deserve. Both flow out of God's love, and you can see really both here. God did not kill him. Instead, God gave him some very important gifts. God's grace produced things in Jonah's heart. Jonah regained his sense of consecration, that he was set apart for, for God for a special purpose. Verse 9, I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He begins to preach again what he was supposed to take to Nineveh in the first place. He begins to, to realize that sense again, the voice of thanksgiving, the voice of sacrifice, that he's sacrificing his life, that he will give all to God. And God is a God of salvation. We never will in this lifetime understand all the objectives of God and our 
suffering, but we can understand that in it is God's grace. God, uh, Jonah began in the belly of that well, began to experience, I believe, a new sense of communion, a new sense that he was God's man, a new sense that he was on earth to bring glory to God and not himself. And he began to praise God from the belly of the well. See, we need to understand God is going to do anything. He's going to go to any lengths to bring His children to Himself, to make you like His Son. And that's the greater work, isn't it? The greater work is not physical ease. The, the greater work is not money. The greater work in your life is sanctification. It's being like Jesus. It's finding humility and truth and righteousness. It's walking in the Spirit. That's the work that God began in you, and He will finish it. Jonah began to experience ultimately the power, not just truth, but the power of truth. You're going to find out in chapter 3 that he's ready for the Word of God to come to him a second time and take him again to Nineveh. Well, this gets us to the second point this morning. Embrace the Lord's discipline. One of my mentors growing up was a Sunday school teacher by the name of Malcolm. And Malcolm, when I met him, was quite successful. He was the development officer for uh, a branch of uh, University of Oklahoma, and he, uh, you know, wore a suit every day and drove nice cars and raised money and did his thing. And, uh, but he would tell us in Sunday school, he would tell us about a time when it, his life got so poor, things got so bad, that he ended up having to get a job driving a tractor trailer, a big rig for a company. Some of you know, if you've done any travels on the mainland, J.B. Hunt. It's got that yellow uh, uh, emblem on the side of the truck. And he worked for less than $5 an hour throughout the 80s driving this big truck. Malcolm would always refer to that time as my time in the belly of the whale. For the longest time, I, I just thought he was referring to the fact that he was in this big, you know, truck that resembled a giant whale or something. But what he really meant was that God had appointed that time to bring him to his knees, to bring him to the humble realization that God wanted a, a better work in him than just success or money or ease, that God wanted his surrender, that God wanted his love, that God wanted his unadulterated worship. God's perfect plan was to sanctify Malcolm, and even if it meant sticking him in that whale for several years, hours upon hours, thinking and praying and meditating on God. And the great truck was God's way of bringing him to substantial change and ultimately calling Malcolm into the ministry. Now, maybe you can look at your own life, identify a time when you were in the belly of a great whale. Maybe it's now. Maybe you're not running and rebelling. Maybe it's something, again, maybe nature has taken its course, or maybe someone else has been evil to you, and you're down in the belly, and you're feeling the pressure of the earth come down upon you, and the weeds wrap around your face, and it seems all is lost. But this is the moment that God is calling you to Himself. In both Proverbs and Hebrews, 
Hebrews chapter 12, the writer says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. And the later, he says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, sometimes people ask this question, why can't God just train us with ease? Why does God have to train us with hardship? Why can't God sanctify me by giving me stuff and making me rich? That really is the prosperity gospel message, right? I mean, that's, that's sort of the way of the Christian life is you get richer and richer and healthier and healthier. Of course, the big obvious irony is, and then you die. How come God doesn't sanctify us by giving us stuff, by making us wealthy. And there's a lot of ways you could answer that, but let me give you a couple. The first is to answer that question with a question, where else can you learn to be totally dependent on the Lord than when you can't depend on anything else? God wants you to be completely dependent on Him Alone. What would we do if God tried to sanctify us with stuff and money and things? What would we ultimately do? We would end up worshiping those things. We would end up saying, well, you know, my life is a lot easier when I have money and stuff, and, and so whatever I have to do to get that stuff. No, God takes it all away. He strips away all our circumstances, so the only thing we can depend on is Him alone. Second answer to this is, the words of Jesus, Jesus says, man does not live on bread alone. What did Jesus mean when He said this? He meant that there's two aspects of life, spiritual and the physical. You can't survive spiritually just by eating physical food. You have to dine on spiritual food. And just like spiritual food doesn't help you when you're hungry physically, physical food, stuff, things, good circumstances, don't help you when you need spiritual food. You need to be taught to eat spiritual bread. So God often will take away all those circumstances, all the positive things in your life, or, or take away some of them so that you will see your need for spiritual bread. Well, how did Jonah return to the Lord? How did he get back? What's the, the pattern we see in this passage? By the way, you'll notice that he says all these things before God points the fish to spit them out, right? He doesn't say, okay, God, I'll get right with you if you save me from this. Then I'll, then I'll pay my vows and sacrifice and worship you and write a song. No, he does this while he's down dying in the belly of the whale. Well, what does he do? Well, he does essentially the opposite. The opposite of what he did in chapter 1. That's what repentance is, right? It's doing the opposite. It's making a turn. It's turning around. So you could say, just like we looked at last week, you could say, first of all, he returned to the presence of God. He wanted communion with God. Verse 2 again, I called out to the Lord. I called out in my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol. I cried, and you heard my voice. That verse is very similar to what David prayed when his sin was discovered. I called out the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. He knew the stories of David and others, and so he cried out 
to God. This reminds me of the story of the Apostle Paul. You know, Paul was Saul, Saul of Tarsus, and Saul of Tarsus was blinded, and Jesus says to him, uh, it's inaudible, it was, they could hear the noise, but they didn't hear the words. He says to, to uh, Saul at that point, who was persecuting Christians all around, he says, why are you persecuting me? At that point, Saul is not yet a Christian. He needs to hear the gospel and believe it. And so God wanted one of the Christians, his name was Ananias, to, to tell Saul the gospel so that Saul could be saved. The only problem is everyone knew who Saul was and that Saul was killing Christians. And so God comes to Ananias and says, hey, I want you to share the gospel to Saul. And Ananias is like, no way, man. I'm not going to talk to that guy. He'll just kill me. And God's answer to Ananias is, behold, he is praying. He's calling out. He's crying out to me. This is what Jonah was doing. He's crying out for the presence of God. He wants God in his life. He wants to have a relationship once again with God. That's a sign of a repentant heart. Next few verses, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Again, you can't get away from the fact that Jonah believes this is all God, even the hardship and the evil of this great storm and what had happened to him. Now I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head and the roots of the mountains. I went down to, down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Just imagine how terrible this must have been. I said this at the beginning of our study of Jonah. Jonah was not in this great cavernous, you know, cave inside the whale with a big uvula hanging down and some fish bones floating around. No, he was probably, couldn't even move. He was probably smashed in with all bunch of other nasty food and stench and seaweed he even mentions wrapping around his face, stomach acids. I read this week about a horse that was swallowed by a whale in Indonesia. The whale spit him back up and his hair was all gone. The acids had chewed off all his hair. You just wonder what Jonah's going through. Jonah's suffering immensely and barely any air. It's not like he could just go in there and walk around and breathe. Barely any air. He knows he's dying. He could sense, I think by his language about going down to the roots of the mountains, I think he could sense the, the pressure getting greater and greater and greater. Indeed, if you study any kind of marine biology, you know that that's, that's what happens to some of these these marine mammals, their, their bodies constrict and get smaller and squeeze down. And you can imagine as it got tighter and tighter and tighter as that great fish went deeper and deeper. My life is fainting away. I remember the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. He is praying to God and he knows that God can hear him. There is unity with God once again. So he returned to the presence of God. And then he also, as we saw the opposite last week, he returned to the Word of God. 8 and 9, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pray. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This passage, indeed, the whole chapter is 
littered with phrases and words and language of the Old Testament. And here is sort of the, the doctrine of salvation in a very simple way. I give my life to God. I vow my life to God. And He alone can save me. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He's repeating the Word of God. You know, you can say until you're blue in the face that you believe in the Word of God, that you believe that Bible is God's Word. You could acknowledge and agree with doctrines such as sola scriptura or the sufficiency of Scripture or the inerrancy of Scripture. But unless the Word of God grips you and is forefront in your mind, you're not submitting to the Lord. 1 John chapter 2, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. John goes on to say, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And of course, Jesus, using that same language in the book of John, says, abide in me and let my words abide in you. And when Jonah does this, he's becoming more and more equipped to obey. Jonah is going back to the Lord. He's repenting. Again, ironically, what we're going to see is that true repentance should be defined as something that is a persevering aspect, that it doesn't persevere in Jonah's life. But here is the start. Jonah is being equipped to obey. He's being equipped to go to the Ninevites and take the Word of God. And here Jonah is being equipped really for the very thing he's going to do. Jonah rejected God's Word. The Ninevites were living in rejecting God's Word. Jonah, interestingly, was swallowed by a great fish and went down and stunk like a great fish. Well, the Ninevites were known for worshiping a fish god. In fact, in much of their torture that I mentioned last time, they would incorporate dead fish. And here comes Jonah, stinking like a fish here to preach the gospel. Jonah needed God's grace. The Ninevites needed God's grace. So all the things that God is doing with Jonah in his heart, he's equipping Jonah to take to the people of Nineveh. Now, this is true of anybody who would take the Word of God. In our hardship, in our difficulty, in our hard times, God is equipping us. He's making us capable and able to carry out the mission that He's given us. Well, let me just make an aside. You know, most of what I've said today applies to believers, and Jonah indeed, I believe even this book he wrote as a believer, as a picture for the people of Israel. I do believe Jonah did repent, ultimately repent. And this passage really is for the people of God to look at themselves, and it's for us to test our own hearts. But that doesn't mean these truths are not applicable to those of you who don't know God. There's no doubt in my mind there's some of you here you don't really know God. Maybe you know stories and you know about God and you kind of say, well, I follow God. But these truths are no less applicable to you than it is to every Christian. You need to turn to the presence of God, beg for God's forgiveness, beg for His presence in your life. Look to the truth of Christ, Christ crucified, dying for your sin, raised with power over sin and death. Believe in these things 
and you will not perish, but have everlasting life. You'll experience the presence of God. The Word of God will be alive in your heart, in your life, and you will be able to realize a great purpose for which He's called you. Let's pray that we would do that even now. Father, we thank You so much for the day. We thank You for the story that uh, came to us from Jonah, but also the story that came from our missionaries who went out and went to Fiji and shared Your truth and supported those who were there. We pray for great fruit there. And we pray for the fruit of Your Word and the listeners even today. Bless us, Lord, as we seek to know You and to make You known. I pray that we would return to You, even if there's little ways. Lord, I'm sure that there are some here who generally follow You and are trusting in You and walking with You. We just pray that all of us would seek for ways in which we rebel, seek for areas that we're not faithful to You. Bless us as we turn back to You. And bless those who don't know You with the knowledge of their need of salvation, the knowledge of their sin. Show them that their sin will kill them and damn them forever unless they repent and follow Christ. We ask that you bless us with that desire. And for those of us who are believers, may we continue in this. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, stand with me for a benediction, and then we'll be finished. May God bless us to embrace all hardship as a loving discipline of our Father. And may His grace and Spirit empower us for holiness for His great glory. Amen.